In 2018, online news source Block Club Chicago reported that a Victorian mansion in the Wicker Park neighborhood of Chicago, dating back to the late 1880s, was up for sale with an asking price of $6.49 million. The home, which rests on the entire northeast corner of Hoyne Avenue and Schiller Street, was at the time the most expensive single-family home for sale in Wicker Park history. Who owned this home when it was built, and why are there similarly grand homes in the area? This is the story of Wicker Park's Beer Baron Row and the murder of John Henry Rapp. Thanks to my pal Grady for suggesting today's Chicago History Podcast topic. As always, if you have a topic you think might make a good fit for an episode, send me an email. That email address is at the end of the show and in the show's notes. Chicago has long been a beer town. If you listen to episode 104 about the breweries on Bosworth, you probably got a pretty good idea about that. In brief, in the mid-1800s, there was an influx of Germans to Chicago, many of them bringing old-world beer-brewing know-how to a town ready to imbibe. Beer makers and booze merchants quickly became quite wealthy while slaking the thirsts of Chicagoans. One of those successful booze merchants was John Henry Rapp, who, according to the 1897 album of genealogy and biography for Cook County, Illinois, was born in 1840 in Luddingworth, Hanover, Germany. In 1854, the Rapp family emigrated to America and settled in Chicago. John Henry was said to be a bright, intelligent boy learning to speak English fluently, After some time employed in a brickyard, Rapp sought higher education, attending night school, where he studied diligently. His first business was a grocery store on the corner of Milwaukee Avenue and Pratt Street, later renamed Huron Street. He then left the city and moved west to an area called Dunkel's Grove, now known as the suburb of Addison. Honestly, writing these would be so much easier if just one episode didn't have so many name changes for roads and towns that I needed to track down. Moving on. After two years of operating a general store in Dunkel's Grove, Rapp sold his interest and moved back to the city opening a flour and feed store at what was then 572-574 Milwaukee Avenue, a small building that eventually merged into a wholesale liquor business. In 1870, he built a larger building on the land, taking up 572-576 to Milwaukee Avenue to create what was called Rapp's Block. He later opened a saloon and expanded his business by importing fine wines and liquors. Rapp became one of the most successful German businessmen in Chicago. Rapp's first wife, Sophie, died young, and he later remarried in 1873 to a woman named Helena. Helena is referred to in the 1897 genealogy and biography listing as, quote, a true type of German-American housewife, always alert and willing to further her husband's interests. 
Together, they had five surviving children, three boys and two girls, and three children who died in infancy, including twins. Rap belonged to several local social orders and societies, including the Independent Order of Oddfellows, the Sons of Herman, the Chicago Rebecca Society, Teutonic Manor Corps, and others. According to the 1897 album of genealogy, quote, In political opinions, he was a Republican, and he had much influence in political affairs, but he never held any office. In researching these episodes, I often come across news articles that are connected but not really crucial to the episode story, but still bring me a laugh. Here is one such from the November 22nd, 1876 Chicago Tribune. It reads, Edward Peterson, sailor, hailing from Milwaukee, spent all his spare cash in John H. Rapp's saloon on Milwaukee Avenue yesterday afternoon, and when the money was all gone, he insisted on helping himself to the liquor, whereupon the bartender, Anton Kirkby, threw a beer glass at him, inflicting a serious wound over his left eye. Kirkby was promptly arrested and locked up in the Madison Street Station. Uh, being a week before Thanksgiving of that year, that must have made for awkward dinner conversation for both families. With the rise in people searching for information on their ancestors, I'm sure many come across stories like this and say, yeah, that was my great-great-grandfather, and he sounds like he was a mess. Uh, fun fact, the first Thanksgiving football game ever held was that same year, 1876. The two teams that played, Princeton and Yale. With his growing wealth, Rapp built a three-story home in Chicago's Wicker Park area, which experienced significant growth after the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. The street on which Rapp built his house is referred to as Beer Baron Row, owing to the number of beer and liquor merchants that resided there. According to the American Institute of Architects' Guide to Chicago, Rapp's mansion was built in 1879, although some sources claim it was completed sometime between 1885 and 1891. The dates vary in different records on the house. The very well-detailed book, Wicker Park, from 1673 through 1929, written by Elaine A. Corrins and referenced while researching this episode, lists the date as 1879, so I'm going to go along with Elaine. If you're a fan of self-guided walking tours, this book makes it easy. I'll have a link to it in the show's notes. The copy I received was even signed by the author. Kind of sweet. The identity of the architect for the wrap home is unclear. Another recognizable house in that area is at 1558 North Hoyne. It was built in 1878 for C. Herman Plouts, who founded the Chicago Drug and Chemical Company and also served as president of the National Malt and Grain Company. From 1927 to 1972, this building was an American Legion Hall. In May of 1934, a U.S. Navy cannon was placed in the front yard, where it remains today. Although referred to as the Schlitz Mansion, the home at 2041 West Pierce was not owned by Joseph Schlitz, but by Edward Uline, nephew of August Krug, founder of the company that would become Schlitz Brewing. 
Uline was employed as the director of Chicago operations of the Schlitz Brewing Company, which was based at the time in Milwaukee. His home was well known for its amazing floral displays. According to the 1894 book Chicago Garden City, Uline was also the vice president of the Chicago Horticultural Society. So into plants Uline was that he had an area measuring 34 by 56 feet devoted to the indoor culture of flowers and plants. Bob Skilnick's book, Beer, A History of Brewing in Chicago, details a May 1875 trip in which Joseph Schlitz boarded the ship Schiller in New York for a trip to Germany. Of the 800 passengers aboard, only half survived when that ship sank at sea. Schlitz's body was never found. Management of Schlitz Brewing went to Edward Uline and his brother, and when Joseph Schlitz's widow passed, the Uline brothers acquired the Schlitz business altogether. If the name sounds familiar, yes, Dick Uline of Wisconsin-based Uline Packaging is an heir to the Schlitz fortune. Fun fact, in 1913, Edward Uline's daughter Ella married Edwin Alexander Seip, the grandson of Chicago brewer Conrad Seip. Edward Uline's daughter Melita married Edwin Seip's brother William Conrad Seip Jr. It's kind of like a beer family soap opera. You can still find Schlitz beer at most liquor stores, and Lauren Mack, Conrad Seip's great-great-great-granddaughter, recently resurrected the Seip Brewing Company. At 1530 North Hoyne is a home once owned by William Legner, who was president of the Chicago Brewers Association. Legner fought hard against the Anti-Saloon League and the eventual arrival of Prohibition in Chicago. One more on Hoyne, 1559 North Hoyne, which was owned by German-born brewmaster Albin Greiner. Other notables who lived in the area near Rapp's home included the owner of a sewing machine manufacturing business, a prominent Chicago gynecologist and surgeon, a lake captain slash vessel owner in the Great Lakes trade, and even super corrupt two-time Mayor William H. Thompson, covered here in episode 117, who lived at 1406 North Hoyne before later moving to 1422 North Hoyne. Back to rap and that fateful day in April of 1897. Gustav H. Braunschweig had worked for John Rapp as a collector and confidential clerk at a salary of $25 a week. That's about $784 a week in today's money before a falling out regarding missing funds. On the morning of Friday, April 23, 1897, Braunschweig said goodbye to his wife and three sons before setting off in an overcoat with a 38 caliber handgun in the pocket. He headed to attorney Joseph A. O'Donnell's home and asked O'Donnell to meet him at Rapp's place of business at 8.30 a.m., where Braunschweig stated he would settle Rapp's claim of $2,300 that's a little more than $72,000 in today's money against him. O'Donnell, who was John H. Rapp's attorney, refused to set up the meeting. Braunschweig then went to Rapp's home, where Rapp was still in bed. Rapp agreed to meet Braunschweig at his office on Milwaukee Avenue at 8.30 a.m. 
Once Braunschweig left, Rapp asked his son, also named John, to get the attorney and to arrange to have Braunschweig arrested at the meeting. I'm going to step back for just a moment. Before this fateful day, Braunschweig admitted a shortage of $800, although he also insisted Rapp owed him $400 in back pay plus several hundred dollars in unpaid expenses. Braunschweig offered Rapp three lots in Kensington on the south side worth $1,000 and seven lots in Park Ridge, a suburb just west of the city limits, worth $1,800 to settle the claim. Rapp refused the properties, insisting on cash. Rapp then said he would be willing to take the Braunschweig home worth $10,000 with a $4,500 mortgage. In case you're lost in the math, Rapp wanted to take a family home with a net worth of $5,500 to offset a perceived $2,300 debt. Braunschweig and his wife refused. Deputy Sheriff Solomon arrived at the liquor store with a capius. That's a fancy word for an arrest warrant. I had to look it up. And although a bartender pointed Braunschweig out to him, Rapp's son Robert insisted Braunschweig not be arrested until his father arrived. At 8.30 a.m., John H. Rapp arrived, passing Braunschweig on the way to a rear room without saying a word. The deputy sheriff announced, Mr. Braunschweig, I have a KPS for you. You are under arrest, placing a hand on Braunschweig's shoulder. Braunschweig replied, wait just a minute. I want to speak to Mr. Rapp, and headed to Rapp's office. As Rapp approached his office, Braunschweig drew his gun and fired one shot into Rapp's right temple. Rapp fell to the floor at his son Robert's feet, who was rushing to help. The only word the elder Rapp uttered was Robert as he reached for his son. Robert Rapp cried, Give me your gun, to the deputy sheriff, who put his hand on his hip pocket and hesitated. Braunschweig placed the gun to his own head and pulled the trigger, killing himself instantly. Robert held a handkerchief to his father's bleeding temple, calling out for a doctor, but it was too late. John Henry Rapp and Gustav Braunschweig were both dead. In the pocket of Braunschweig's overcoat, a business card was found with the following, handwritten in what the Chicago Chronicle newspaper described as, quote, beautiful German script, end quote. It read, Officer, kindly tell Herman Sigmund, Undertaker, West Chicago Avenue, to take care of my body and notify Mrs. G. H. Braunschweig, 928 Walnut Avenue. I've killed the man who tried to ruin my family. Gustav H. Braunschweig. William Chonis, Braunschweig's attorney, said later that his client had threatened to commit suicide if arrested. Rapp's sons, Robert and John, claimed that two weeks before, an angry Mrs. Braunschweig came to John Rapp's home to say that her husband Gustav had threatened to take his own life, in which event she would kill Rapp. Mrs. Rapp denied this. Quote, We lived happily together, Mrs. Braunschweig said later. I never had any trouble until we met Rapp. God knows my husband did not steal any of Rapp's money, but Rapp made him pay his own expenses, and my husband used part of the collections to get even. That's all there is to it, end quote. When asked if her husband drank, Braunschweig's widow replied, Yes, he was a moderate drinker, but he was kind to his family, and we all loved him, before breaking down into tears. 
Rep's sons denounced the deputy sheriff as a coward, all but blaming him for not taking Braunschweig into custody sooner. The sons claimed after the first shot, Deputy Solomon had, quote, no thought other than his own safety, end quote. Deputy Solomon said Braunschweig offered no resistance when Solomon put his hand on Braunschweig's shoulder, and there was nothing to indicate the violence that was to come. The deputy coroner who handled the case was of the opinion that Rapp was too hard on the delinquent creditor Braunschweig and that Deputy Sheriff Solomon was not negligent in his duties. It had been rumored that there were threats made by both Rapp and Braunschweig, and, oddly enough, it was reported that the night before the incident, both men had a drink at Rapp's saloon with an ex-alderman, because Chicago... Uh, at midnight, and parted in a, quote, tolerably friendly manner, end quote. On the same day, Sunday, April 25th, 1897, funerals were held for John Henry Rapp and Gustav Braunschweig. As it was often the custom during the times, the services were held in their respective homes. The April 26th, 1897 Chicago Tribune reported that Raps was held at his home at Fowler Streets, later renamed Schiller, and Hoyne Avenue with hundreds of persons crowding into the residence shortly after 1 p.m. There were more than 200 buggies and carriages in the streets in the area which blocked traffic. Reverend Lambrecht of St. John's Lutheran Church officiated with the funeral sermon in German. Rapp was laid to rest at Graceland in a family plot. Braunschweig's service was held at his residence at 938 Walnut. His service, also in German, was conducted by the Masons. His internment was at Waldheim Cemetery in Forest Park. The scene of the murder was located at what now would be 906 North Milwaukee Avenue in Chicago's Noble Square neighborhood, right about at the middle of the Milwaukee Avenue bridge that crosses the Kennedy Expressway. As for Rapp's home, in the early 1900s, it was converted into a multi-room dwelling and used as a boarding house, then later an apartment building. In 1980, a man named Mike Conover bought Rapp's mansion for $150,000, That's about $474,000 in today's money, when Wicker Park was a bit mm, sketchy. As the neighborhood gentrified and property values rose, Conover, who lived in one of the apartments, reportedly did his best to keep up on the maintenance, but by 2007, the building had seen better days. Enter Timothy and Robin Sheehan, who in 2007 paid nearly $2.47 million, a little more than $3.1 million in today's money, for the home. According to the Cook County Recorder of Deeds, they spent considerable time and money to convert the 22 rooms into a five-bedroom, five-bathroom single-family home, restoring many of the historical details before putting it on the market in 2018 with an asking price of $6.49 million. It appears there were no takers. According to Curbed Chicago, the home was briefly offered as a $15,000 a month rental before being taken off the market once again. 
When the weather is good and the state of affairs in the world is back on track, there are numerous walking tours that will undoubtedly tell you much more about Beer Baron Row. Thank you for listening to today's episode about Beer Baron Row in Wicker Park and the murder of John Henry Rapp. As always, I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or, of course, that uh, thing about having a different topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast. I can be reached by email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. If you would, the next time someone asks if you have any podcast suggestions, please mention the Chicago History Podcast. We would love to reach new listeners and fans of Chicago history. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.